Please take out your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 12. That will be our jump-off point as we start into a new series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. If you do not have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and you are, as usual, most welcome to it. Friends, this morning as we gather in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that is not only impacting people's physical health, but also their emotional and mental health, as well as their financial health. You add to that a contentious presidential election season that's bound to only get more troubling, as everyone believes that life as we know it will be over if the other guy wins. And that's not even to mention the Twins or the Vikings. There could not be a more appropriate season for us to be called to fix our eyes upon Jesus than this one. And so as we get started this morning, as we begin a series in the book of Mark, I want us to consider what the author of the book of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is our theme as we walk into Mark. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's pause here for a moment because the author is writing to a group of people enduring persecution, enduring hardship, and he says to them, because you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that you should know, church, that he's pointing to these stories that come out of chapter 11, all these testimonies of people who by faith endured. If you've been with us for a while, six years ago, we preached through Hebrews 11. And we defined faith as taking God at his word and living like it's true. And that's what you find in Hebrews 11. That's what they did. They took God at his word and they endured. They trusted God. They stepped out in faith and took the pain of the world. They endured. And so the author of Hebrews puts all of these examples in front of his readers and then gives them this. If you want to run the race, if you want to be faithful to Jesus Christ, if you want to run the race with perseverance in order that you might finish, there's two things that must happen. He calls them to throw off all of their hindrances. Everything that hinders them. It's kind of like he says, look at these guys, listen to their stories, live up to them, and take off everything that's slowing you down. Now, if you pay attention to the text, these are not sinful things. He's going to address that. We need to see that there are distractions in our life, things that are not necessary, things that are not sinful, things that can hinder us from persevering. Beloved, that very well could be video games. It could be Instagram. It could be watching sports. It could be keeping up with politics. It could be Netflix. It could be 10,000 other things that we look at our life and go, yeah, it's not that bad. 
It's not sinful. And yet we never pick up that it's hindering us. That there are things in our lives that we give way too much time to. I was going, guys, you don't see that's hindering you? You want to persevere the race? Get rid of it. Throw it off. Get ready to run. And then he adds, and throw off, same verb, the sin that so easily entangles. Brothers and sisters, we could paint huge pictures of sin. Right? As if there's these really ridiculous sins in the world and like, you know what? I didn't do crack this week, so I'm doing fine. You know, I, I haven't hired a prostitute. I'm doing well. We could paint these enormous pictures of sin as if, look at all this stuff I don't do. Without paying attention to our hearts to see the way that sin entangles us. The sins that we're apt to fall into. The little traps that Satan specifically sets for you because he knows you. These are the little things you get entangled in. That you get bound up by. That you may not even notice. That the author of Hebrews is saying, get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. So that you might run with perseverance, with endurance, with steadiness. And beloved, the only way we do that is without hindrances and sin that easily entangles us. That's his exhortation to run the race that's marked out for you. That despite the difficulties, despite the distractions, despite sin... That we might live a life that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And that's our call. That's our, our primary push. That ought to be the thrust of our lives. If we call ourselves a Christ follower, that's our aiming point. So how do we do that? How do we endure difficulties? How do we cast off distractions? How do we cast off sin? Well, that's the question you ask after this verse 1. So it brings us to verse 2. And he answers the question. It's a question we're going to be looking at over the next several months. And it's a question we're going to be answering thoroughly over the next several months. Verse 2. How do you beat it? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the picture? Do you see that he ran the race marked out for him with perseverance? Do you see how he endured suffering? Jesus did. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. 
You should know that this Greek verb used here implies that it's just as much an active work of looking away from something as it is an active move of looking at something. But to fix your eyes on something is to choose it over something else. It's to realize that this is more valuable, more treasured, more significant, more real, more lasting. It's to say Jesus is worth more than all of these hindrances. Jesus is worth more than all of this sin. So this is all fake. And Jesus is real. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the more valuable, the more treasured thing. It is to know the world, to know the distractions, to know the temptations, and to choose Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Beloved, do you realize that that's you? That you're the joy of Jesus? You're the joy that was set before him. That's why he endured the cross was your salvation. That's his joy. He, he, he ran the race thinking of you. Plural. Not you singular. That's dangerous. You plural. He ran the race marked out for him, endured the cross, endured shame, because you, plural, are a great inheritance, according to Ephesians 2. Jesus endured the cross for our salvation. He overcame death. He overcame the world for our salvation. And so church, in a season When there are so many idols abounding, there are so many shiny things that can distract us and garner our attention. There are so many things that we can fall in love with and want so badly. And the author of the book of Hebrews speaks to that and says, despite the distraction, despite the lures, despite your idolatry, Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so in the midst of this coronavirus season, in the midst of this distance learning, distance working, socially distant world that we live in now, in the midst of this political unrest, social unjust, in the midst of all of this, Calvary, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. He wrote it. He created it. He gave it to you. Let's fix our eyes on Him. So to help us do that, we're starting a series in the book of Mark looking at the life of Jesus that we might see who He is, that we might fix our eyes on Him. And as we walk through this book, you'll, you'll notice it breaks into two parts that are very, very, very fitting. It's like Mark sets out to answer two questions. Who is Jesus? 
And why is Jesus? You actually see in the first eight chapters, he takes on who is Jesus? Who is this man? What was he like? And beloved, we need to soak in that. Because we so easily misunderstand, misconstrue, and paint these false pictures of Jesus. So we're going to go through the gospel to see who he was. And he picks up in chapter 9 through the end of the book. He's answering the question, why? Do we know who he is? Why did he come? Of course, the answer to that is our salvation to save us. From our sins. So this morning my intention is to introduce the series. And to introduce the book. So as we step into the gospel of Mark. Under the understanding that we're stepping into it. That we might fix our eyes on Jesus. Knowing that he's better. Knowing that he's more valuable. Knowing that he's more significant. Than the shiny things of the earth. We want to step into this gospel to pick up a background this morning of who Mark was, where Mark got his material from, and why he got his got where and why he wrote his gospel. So it'll help us as we move along through this book, we'll understand. So as we get started, the first question we need to ask is: who was Mark? The first mention of Mark by name is in Acts chapter 12. Acts 12 verse 12 says this. When he realized this, talking of Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. First, we should recognize that his name was John Mark. That he's referred to as John Mark by many of the early church fathers as a way to distinguish him. We mostly know him as Mark. I've laughed at this text a couple of times because it's referring to his, his mother's house. I wonder if that's not why it says the house of Mary, the mother of John. If you were watching Monday Night Football the other day, they kept referring to Patrick Mahomes as Pat. When his mom tweets the, the, uh, the commentators and says, please stop calling him Pat. His name is Patrick. So they changed their verbiage. Mary wants to know son's name was John, even though we all call him Mark. We'll stick with Mark. In this story in Acts 12, what you find is that Peter the disciple has been arrested. That he's been put in jail. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been seen as a threat. This is not the first time it's happened. So they chain him to two guards. It seems like a pretty helpless scenario if you lean into it. So the early church gathers together to pray. And they're at the home of Mary. Praying. When an angel of the Lord appears. And sets Peter free. Looses his chains. And Peter runs out of the prison to Mark's mom's house, where many of the disciples have gathered. Whether or not this is Mark's first interaction with Peter or the disciples, we don't know. What we do know is 13 verses later, Mark is on a mission. Acts 12 verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem 
And when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What you find one verse later in Acts 13 is Paul, Barnabas, and Mark go on Paul's first missionary journey, spreading the gospel and planting churches. Then in Acts 15, when they're about to leave for another missionary journey, you find Paul and Barnabas about to head out again, and yet Paul lacks confidence in Mark. So Paul and and Barnabas split up, Barnabas taking Mark, Paul taking Silas. Mark is mentioned a couple of other times in the New Testament. You find that he's actually pretty close to the apostles, with Paul requesting Mark to come visit him at the end of 2 Timothy, and Peter mentioning him at the end of 1 Peter in something of a profound way, referring to Mark as his son, suggesting they had a very tight relationship, suggesting that Peter probably took on Mark as a disciple and walked with him. So what we can gather about Mark is that he's roughly mentioned 10 times in the New Testament, but he was not one of the 12 disciples. That's a common misconception. Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus. They give us eyewitnesses accounts. But if you lean into the Gospels, you find Luke was a disciple of Paul and Mark was a disciple of Peter's. It's worth noting, there's one other story in the Gospel of Mark that gets attributed to Mark. doesn't get attributed by name, but most people think it's Mark. It's an interesting story. It's a little bit of a funny story. And here it comes. In Mark 14, Jesus has been betrayed. Everyone has fleed, except for one young man who attempts to follow. This is the only place it shows up. It's one of the reasons why people think it's Mark. Mark 14, verses 51 and 52. And then a young man followed him. Keeping in mind that's Jesus who's been arrested. So that's Jesus and a group of Roman soldiers with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they, the Roman guards, seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They grabbed his clothes. He gets out of his clothes and runs off naked. Widely held, that's Mark. Did Mark walk in the final days of Jesus? We don't know. He doesn't out himself. But in total, what you see in Mark's gospel is that Mark is not an eyewitness of Jesus. What you see in Mark's gospel is that he was a disciple of Peter, who listened to Peter's stories, who heard Peter's sermons, and he gives an account of Peter's experience with Jesus. You'll actually find that as we walk through Mark, that it has a, if you'll allow me to say it, a Petrine flavor. That's the adjective form of Peter. It feels like Peter sometimes. And this is actually attested to by the early church fathers. Papias, writing in 110 AD, writes this, 80 years after the time of Jesus. Papias quotes John, the disciple, calling Mark the the author of the gospel and including in his account that Mark was not an eyewitness follower of Jesus, but was a disciple of Peter's, who accurately wrote down all that Peter remembered of Jesus' words and his works. Which is to say... That John the disciple authenticated Mark's authorship. That John the disciple authenticated the stories came from Peter. So this isn't just speculation. You get it from early, 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 early church history. 
to see Peter's influence in this gospel. Mark doesn't have a purpose statement in his gospel. But if you take the whole book as a whole, what you see is Mark writing a very pastoral perspective as if he's encouraging the believers, most probably in Rome, to look to Jesus, to follow Jesus despite the cost. You might well say he's writing to call them to fix their eyes on Jesus. Because if you study Peter's writings, especially First Peter, you'll find a lot of them center around suffering. And Mark picks up that theme in this gospel. It's like he's preparing his readers to suffer. That's why nearly half the gospel focuses on the last week of Jesus. So Mark begins his gospel by writing this, Mark 1, 1. By the way, thought to be the, what they called this book in its earliest form. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll unpack that more next week. But Mark's aim is to share the gospel. Mark's aim is to share the good news. The story that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Mark sharing the good news. I want us to think about the good news from an Old Testament perspective. To understand that the gospel is a word, the good news, the evangelion, what the word is in Greek, isn't new to the New Testament. It's actually forecasted in the Old. Book of Isaiah, verse forty. Verse 9, chapter 40, verse 9. Going up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Do you see Isaiah calling the nation of Israel to be a herald of the good news? Later, Isaiah will write in verse six or in chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called the oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Church, do you realize that the good news was fulfilled In Jesus Christ, the good news is Jesus Christ. That the help the poor need is Jesus. The help the brokenhearted need is Jesus. The help that the bound need is Jesus. And so this morning as we gather together under the call of the good news, we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. That we might be reminded to herald 
the good news. To lift up our voices with strength to herald the good news. We might be reminded that we've been anointed to bring the good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captives, to the bound. We might be reminded that's always been the call of the Scriptures, is that those who have the good news would proclaim it. And beloved, to do that, to proclaim the good news, we must know it. We must marinate in it. We must become saturated by it. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. And what we'll find if we fix our eyes on Jesus is to understand in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, he looks at some broken men who are unqualified by the world and says, follow me. Doesn't ask them to get their acts together. Doesn't ask them to change everything. Just says, follow me. Come alongside this journey. Later, he'll come across a leper. An unclean man who in every part of their society would be totally cast out. And Jesus calls him to be clean, declares him clean, accepts him, and heals him, and declares him clean. Jesus will tell the paralytic that his sins are completely forgiven. And then call him to walk anew. Physically and spiritually. Jesus calls out to the man with a withered hand and tells him, stretch it out. Jesus tells the storms. In the middle of a raging storm, be still. And they listened. Jesus tells a woman with, who's been bleeding for 12 years that her faith has healed her. And yet to another, he says, do not fear, but believe. The very statement that says, take your eyes off of that and look at me. Fix your eyes on me. And he tells the disciples on a rocking boat, take heart. It is I. Calvary, as we walk through this series, we want to look at these pictures of Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing He's more valuable than anything in this world. That it's not a competition. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus that we might let go of that which hinders us. We might walk out of the sin that so easily entangles us. That we could run the race with perseverance. That we could finish what God has put before us. And church, we will only do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, even a handful of minutes ago, we sang a song. Yet not I, but... Christ in me. That's the hope of our salvation. Not that we could save ourselves. We are not the author and perfecter of our faith. As if there's anything we can add but sin. For while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. While we were still enslaved, Christ 
set us free. The good news came to us and brought us to salvation. Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, brought us into his story. So as we gather together this morning as a body, Father, we confess to you that we harbor, that we hold on to, that we treasure things that hinder us. That we love things that aren't you. Father, would you be gentle in our lives to show us the things we must let go of? Father, would you be gentle in our lives to reveal our misordered loves? Father, we, like the Pharisees, like to categorize sin. We often like to think of what we're not guilty of rather than considering what we are guilty of. Father, there's sin that we're so easily entangled by. Father, I ask that you'd be gentle with us. That you would reveal the sin in our lives that so easily entangles us. That you would reveal it and that you would set us free that we might run the race with perseverance that you have marked out for us. Father, it is our desire, earnest desire, to follow you, to become more like you, to see Jesus exalted. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the boldness to live out our lives with our eyes fixed on you. Putting aside things that hinder us, putting aside our sin, fixing our eyes on you. That we might proclaim you. We might herald a God who saves the weak and the broken and the captive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.